So welcome everybody. This is meditation uh, and attachment, the deepening your practice series. It is March 4th, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific time. And we are in uh, a compassion series. And tonight the topic is compassion for neutral people. Compassion practice, when we do it as a formal practice, is really a training to open uh, the mind, the body-mind, to a willingness to hold an empathetic experience of someone else. In Buddhism, it's narrowly focused around the suffering experience of someone else. In English, compassion, of course, means uh, ko means to share, and passion means feeling. And then uh, compassion really means to be able to share the experience of other people's feelings. Um, we talk about uh, empathy in relationship to compassion because in order to experience compassion, it's an empathy-based practice. So you, uh, the first level is this visceral response to the witnessing of somebody else's physical or emotional pain. Uh, the second is this capacity to recognize the facial expressions and body language of someone else and to be able to interpret the meaning as a reflection of their internal state. And then the third is compassionate empathy, where you actually create in your own body a facsimile of the feeling that you experience in their body. So in an empathetic exchange, you take in the feeling experience of the other person and feel it physically in your body, and they take in the ex your internal experience, and then they feel it in their body. There's a lot of things about that uh, that are important to understand. If you're feeling emotion in your body, that means you you have the capacity to feel emotion in the body. Not everybody has that. We might, uh, if we do have it, make the assumption that everybody does, but they don't. And that uh, often depends on their attachment conditioning. When you look at uh, anxious avoidant children, who face an, an unending stream of rejection of their attachment needs by their caregivers, the main way that they learn to regulate their emotions is by suppressing awareness of them. So they simply disconnect the, the feelings uh, state of their own emotions in the body. Uh, sometimes if it's extreme, they also disconnect uh, the second level of empathy of being able to read other people's facial expressions. If you encounter somebody like that, what they require from you in order to communicate what your emotional state is, is for you to describe it in language, in words, because they're unable to detect it. Um, so when you talk about compassion, you're talking about a base level of skills that need to be in place, and not everybody has that base level of skills in place. So they may or may not be able to, to uh, experience a genuine, compassionate response to something. If you talk about uh, anxious, ambivalent children, so anxious, avoidant children become dismissing adults, and uh, anxious, uh, ambivalent children become dis preoccupied adults. Preoccupied people often are able to engage in a kind of pseudo-empathy. Uh, they're very focused on and engage in 
an awareness of the mind state of other people, but they often in the process lose track of their own emotions. And for them, it's an external reading of the other person. So that's that second level of empathy. But if they get so disconnected from their own emotional experience and their own internal experience, they don't really have any way to map their own emotions or the empathetic experience. So it's not embodied. It's really just a teleological view or secondary kind of uh, empathetic experience. So when we talk about the development of compassion, what we're talking about is uh, this series of skills which are necessary to generate a, a genuinely compassionate experience. One of them is attunement. Uh, and this is where you place your attention on somebody and they uh, see that uh, your attention is on them and then uh, they place your attention uh, on you and you know that their attention is on you. Everybody, uh, I think, probably has the experience of attunement. One of the things to pay attention to with attunement, of course, is that it is accompanied by an emotional response for being seen or revealing yourself to someone. So there's a, a quality of vulnerability in that. Can you regulate your own emotions well enough to hold the attunement with someone else? And then we get into the distances of, of uh, the, the capacity of the human eye to resolve a visual experience. So at eight heat, um, Uh, the human eye has a hard time resolving uh, uh, visual experience at a resolution which is sufficient to uh, drive much of an emotional response. Uh, because you can't really see uh, emotional micro expressions, you can't really make out the fluctuations of the iris of the other person, and you, you can only get a general sense of what's going on with them through their uh, more, uh, for the from larger body gestures and, and uh, uh, a basic understanding of facial expressions, it tends to produce uh, much less intensity. But when you get to win within three feet of somebody, uh, the human eye has enough resolution suddenly to be able to detect at a much subtler level the uh, emotional micro expressions in somebody's face and have a much uh, much more data in terms of what they're feeling. So you may notice a stronger reaction to that. And then when you get within, say, a foot of somebody else's uh, face, you begin to be able to see the subtle fluctuations in their irises, which is something that you can't mask. Most of us uh, who live in urban environments have learned to suppress the spontaneous expressions of emotions on our faces unless we feel safe and unguarded. But even if you did feel guarded, you wouldn't be able to suppress the, the, the change in your irises. Now, you may be thinking, I don't know how to decode the fluctuations of somebody else's irises. What, what are you talking about? But if you had a sensitive enough caregiver when you were an infant and you were cradled in the arms and you're your face was six inches from somebody else's face and they took care of you, 
part of your capacity to recognize their face would be to recognize the various states of their irises and assign meaning to it, which would be unconsciously available to you. How many people do you get uh, allowed to be within a foot of your face and stare into your eyes and track your irises without uh, too much of an emotional response to that, that you can't allow it? That, that would be the question to understand. We often, in the beginning of practice, of course, think ourself is in charge of all this, but this is another one of those examples pointing to the self is actually uh, the end of the process, and that the body-mind is engaged in this, this uh, process of, of an exchange of information and assigning meaning to it, even if the self uh, doesn't really have a, a, a handle on it. Christian? In the preoccupied example that you gave, where the third level of empathy is not present, does that mean that because they're not aware of their own feeling, they, they can't have it arise in themselves, that they don't really end up taking the other person's feeling seriously? Well, it's not so much that if you can't differentiate your own feeling from somebody else's feeling, you can't really assign a, a meaning to it in that way. And often because the internal experience of a preoccupied person is so chaotic and their own emotions so dysregulated, uh, it, it obscures the subtle embodied uh, empathetic experience. And so it becomes teleological because the felt sense of it is absent. They are very good often at um, identifying uh, uh, body language and facial expressions, but because they don't have the, a real capacity to compare that to their own uh, and uh, create separation from the other, uh, and because they're often not inclined to actually inquire whether their perception of what's happening is correct, uh, they assign meaning to it based on what their experience of the outer expression is, which would not be what we mean by a felt sense of uh, empathy where you have the experience, the clear experience of someone else which is differentiated from your own emotional experience. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. um, the reason I like to point this out is because you can begin to develop all of these skills if you don't have ready access to them. You can begin to uh, develop of sensory clarity around emotional experiences. There are four of these experiences that I recommend that you develop. One is the, the awareness of your own emotional response to the present moment. That tends to play out on the surface, face, front of the throat, front of the torso, inside of the arms, inside of the legs. It's a vibratory energy. Now that first we discern to be emotional in nature, and then as we develop clarity, we're able to discern one emotional pattern of sensation from another. Um, we use the, the Finnish map of uh, emotions uh, that you can either find uh, through uh, us or on uh, the web uh, that has 40 uh, emotions mapped out on it. This, the Finnish study was done um, by uh, self-report, so it's not empirical in that sense. But they just had people draw the patterns of emotional experiences that they had, and then they layered hundreds of these drawings over each other. 
so that you have this the, these uh, spreads of, uh, of sensory activity and intensity over the body. And they mapped 40 of them. So the only one that covers the whole range is joy. And all of the other ones covers parts of that so that you begin to recognize the patterns of activation and you can tell one emotion from another. The second uh, kind of emotional experience that you want to track is self-generated emotion that's associated with thinking. So uh, in, in the West, of course, we've divided thinking from feeling, but in, in uh, Buddhism that's not happened. All thought has an emotional component. And so when you think a thought, it generates a feeling state in the body, and that plays largely in the same arena, face, front of the throat, front of the torso, inside of the arms, inside of the legs. The third uh, emotional experience is the somaticized emotional experience that we hold as a result of being emotionally overwhelmed. We get stuffed in there, waiting for later processing. So depending on how sensitive your caregivers were when you were young, uh, either you they took care of you well enough so that you didn't really start using somaticized emotion as a regulatory, uh, a part of the regulatory system of or they didn't, and you stored a lot of emotion in the body, and now you need to attend to it as an adult so that you can release it and uh, regain some of the energy. It takes an enormous amount of energy to hold uh, somaticized emotion. And the more that you release it, of course, the more you get that energy back that you can use for other things. And then that fourth one is the empathetic experience. One of the things about the empathetic experience is it um, People often report that it's directional rather than over the surface of the body, and that it is in contrast to the emotional experience that you're having. If you don't have really good clarity with it, sometimes it can be confusing that you're having a, a, a feeling state in the body that you're not really understanding why it's there or what would be, what, how you would be react, reacting in such a way that you would then have that experience. I noticed that. Um, uh, often uh, it's just situational. I was uh, co-teaching a class with somebody and I made one of my offhanded remarks about uh, uh, Republicans, which I'm sometimes known to do. And I, and I suddenly felt this whole side of my body lighting up with a kind of heat-like energy. And I was really surprised at what it was. And then I looked over and I could see from from her expression that I was being bombarded with anger and that the whole side of my body had lit up from the aura. Um, the, um, so that's what you want to have. Those are the, that's the basic tool set of uh, compassion. The, the piece that we do in the formal practice to develop the, the willingness to hold that suffering experience of other people is just that, the attention to the willingness to hold the suffering experience of someone else. The untrained body-mind, when it encounters an afflictive experience or an unpleasant experience or a painful experience, reflexively will turn away from it, will disconnect the uh, empathetic capacity and switch into the sympathetic response. So sympathy is the near enemy of compassion. 
you shut off the empathetic experience and flip to a sympathetic one. So a thought-based cognitive reaction rather than one that is also uh, effective or emotional response. The main difference uh, in between the two for the experience of the other person is the sympathetic response is not that helpful in emotionally regulating the, the distress. If you make an empathetic connection to someone and you allow that exchange of empathetic experience and your experience of them comes into you and you bring your emotional regulation skills to it, then you begin to transform it. And as it's passed back, it's coming back in a more regulated form. And over a period of time, you can begin to co-regulate with the other person. Co-regulation is one of these fundamental activities between human beings, which I think is important to pay attention to. Uh, it is largely unconscious and it is largely automatic and sometimes you can do it and sometimes you can't do it with somebody. Most of the time, if you find that, that you're, you feel emotionally regulated just by hanging out and spending some time with somebody, that process is uh, unconscious and automatic. And so it's hard to adjust that if, if that isn't actually what happens. There's you know, a number of outcomes. One is that you feel great uh, and regulated and balanced after the exchange, um, and they feel dysregulated by the same exchange. And so they don't want to hang out and connect to you because every time they do, you they feel worse even though you feel better. So that's a kind of mismatch that can happen yeah, easily enough. Uh, sometimes you encounter somebody and not, not much happens. You just feel the same as you did before. And they could feel the same as they did before. So there's not going to get a, there's not going to be a lot of traction in that connection because it doesn't serve that central purpose. Um, or you could be dysregulated by them. So you feel either regulated and better, you feel the same, or you feel dysregulated. And so they will have the same experience. Um, of one of those, and then what you're looking for then is somebody that uh, makes you feel much more regulated and the other person also feels much more regulated in the exchange, and that's something to value and put energy into. And there isn't a whole lot that you can do about that because it's unconscious and automatic. You just have to pay attention to it. But when we have these empathetic encounters with other people, uh, the possibility of connecting is there, and it's this automatic and unconscious process, um, which uh, if we are then in touching into a lot of suffering in the other person, we may have an automatic visceral response of wanting to disconnect and shift into an empathetic experience. Sorry, a sympathetic experience, uh, not an empathetic experience. And so in the formal training around compassion, what we're really doing is training the mind to intercept those uh, uh, experiences of other people's suffering and not just reflexively turn away from them, but to intentionally open to an empathetic exchange with somebody. That's the activity of compassion. The near enemy is sympathy, which is the intellectual or the cognitive understanding of their suffering and then responding in a cognitive way to somebody else's suffering. 
one of the things to pay attention to about this, and one of the reasons why a sympathetic response is often not uh, uh, useful to the other person is that uh, when you're in a great deal of distress, the cognitive mind has a tendency to shut off and you become emotional. Um, if you come at somebody whose cognitive mind is off and they're emotionally dysregulated and you're presenting a cognitive-based solution to their problem, they're going to feel unseen and uncared for and typically respond pretty negatively to that. And they're not wrong. You haven't seen them and you haven't responded in a way that would be useful to them or meaningful to them, even though that that tends to be where we go when we disconnect our own emotions to be able to come out of the, the suffering experience that we're aversive to in that moment. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. And so sometimes when we feel overwhelmed by the demand for some kind of a response to the experience of somebody else's suffering, we respond by devaluing making them unworthy of a response so that we don't have to uh, suffer from the experience of not wanting to do it. Stas? So in formal practice, I'm able to get concentrated and get into the compassion mind state with a person, let's say a difficult person. Then I go out and meet them and you know, I'm able to connect, but the emotional experience is still overwhelming for me. So it's, you know, just snapshots. This is an interesting point. And I, um, and you have the capacity for emotionally regulating the experience of someone else's suffering that you have, and you can meet them in a compassionate response while you have that capacity, but if they begin to overwhelm your capacity to regulate both your emotional experience and their emotional experience, it is actually better to disconnect empathetically and switch into the sympathetic response, even though in that moment you're no longer in, in the practice of compassion. We don't want to have two dysregulated people that are needing a third for a compassionate response. <laughs> we want to be able to manage that. So when we were talking earlier about these basic skills, one of the skills is to develop a great capacity for emotional regulation so that you can really regulate your own emotions in response to somebody else's suffering. And the, 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 the greater your capacity to do that, of course, the greater your capacity to uh, hold the experience of somebody else's. That's an important thing to note, because if you surround yourself with people who have tremendous capacity to emotionally regulate and are willing to hold you in a compassionate uh, container, then you can use that to uh, really explore to the very edges of meaning. You can really take some big risks in your exploration because if you get totally pulverized, you can crawl back and they'll take you up and be able to hold the full intensity of that distress uh, and then 
come bring you back into balance and then of course encourage you to go explore again um, if you come at them over and over again with an intensity of suffering that uh, causes them to be overwhelmed and need to disconnect from it what often begins to happen is this unconscious um, limit placing they begin to discourage you rather than encourage you from exploring so that you can not so that they don't have the burden of having to be overwhelmed by your experiences when you come back so it's a great favor that you do yourself in order to hold a, a real intense experience so that you can go explore and it also is very serviceable to the people that make up your secure base because they can hold the intensity of experience when you come back and it, it makes a, a better collaborative ex exchange but without question, if you find that you're being overwhelmed by the suffering experience of someone else and you're about to lose your emotional equilibrium, it is better to disconnect for both both of you. And then re-regulate yourself and then open again to the empathetic experience and do that as many times as you need to. Is that all making sense? So I'm, I'm laying this out here in this way because uh, we're now talking about neutral people as the, as the topic, practicing for neutral people. You go out into the world, of course, and you, you open uh, uh, the compassionate container as you're wandering around and you just allow these sort of random connections to people uh, that are in the neutral category. So neutral means people that you don't use a lot of resources, uh, uh, time, energy, or resources uh, to support, and you don't have a lot of aversion to them, either strongly uh, favoring them or uh, repulsed by them. And so you move through the day uh, open to the experiences of other people and engaging them. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's who is it that you encounter and then how do you manage that experience particularly in, in the politics of our time and this uh, COVID period um, how do you take care of people I'm, I'm always surprised um, as I encounter these uh, sort of anti-mask people uh, a particular bone with this is the uh, idea that um, that you would have so little regard for other people that you would not be willing to protect them with something so simple as wearing a mask. So to me this is a, a failure of compassion, a failure of the willingness to actually take care of the people in the community. Um, whether you think that you can get it or not or whether you think that you're vital enough to survive getting it if you get it and you pass it to other people who are not uh, as uh, vibrant and capable of surviving it as you are is that not uh, uh, the responsibility that you have in holding a compassionate space for the whole community um, so this is part of this uh, I think opening and understanding to really uh, you're part of this community uh, and we live together we're human beings in these bodies that are designed to be in complex social engagements 
you really cannot uh, explore to the extent that you need to to find meaning if you're not safe, if you don't feel safe in the world. This is part of that responsibility. When you talk about the attachment mechanism, it goes off in, if you're frightened physically or frightened of uh, emotional abandonment, and it propels you to connect, to reconnect to the, to the secure base that you have. But it also deactivates the exploration mechanism, so that if you go out into the world and it, the experience of being in the world is one of being fearful, it's already inhibiting the capacity to explore and find meaning. Um, and so part of this uh, process of uh, being and practicing a compassionate response to the community is to take care of the community in such a way that each of us feels a sense of safety being in the world and exploring the world. And we are not relieved of that responsibility for each other, even if we disagree with the points of view that people are maintaining. Um, even though I uh, uh, find that, the, that that kind of response is really unforgivable in terms of the harm that it can cause, I am not relieved then of my obligation to still respond in a compassionate way to somebody who would do that. Um, how do we manage that, right? That's an, that's an emotional response that could then interfere with our own capacity then to be able to open and hold the suffering experience of someone else. It is interesting to me then that as your own capacities, as your own skill set to create the compassionate container are limited, the, the compassionate responses are also limited. And you see over and over again that a large segment of the population falls not only out of the capacity for compassion, but they fall out of the compassion, the capacity for sympathy, and the responses over and over again are cruelty. So it is this this real failure to uh, uh, develop these skills, which which I feel you are responsible to develop. So why would that be? Sometimes there isn't instruction, or sometimes uh, there's a sense of woundedness. Uh, sometimes there's a sense of, of uh, uh, suffering, uh, your own suffering that becomes so overwhelming that it clouds the experience of everything else. You get trapped in this fog of your own suffering, and you're unable to respond in a way uh, really even experience things beyond that, that uh, experience of suffering that you have. Um, and that would be tending more toward uh, the preoccupied side of things. Dismissing people really uh, just shut down the emotional experience altogether and become very uh, thought-based, very logically based. Uh, I use the word logic uh, loosely because often the responses are uh, not uh, useful. Uh, and uh, if we look at the consequences uh, to the environment of these very logical decisions, these unfeeling decisions over and over again, we see uh, uh, the outcome, which is in some ways threatening to all of us, 
remember that this uh, this experience of threat turns on the attachment mechanism and shuts down the exploration mechanism. So it becomes harder and harder to find solutions to these problems because you can't see uh, and can't explore in that way. One of the things that is emphasized by this uh, response is uh, that the attachment mechanism divides uh, the world into safe and unsafe. And so if you're constantly activated in your attachment strategy, you're constantly making this evaluation of safe and unsafe, or uh, known and unknown, or uh, 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 my tribe, the enemy, which is what happens over and over again. So you see that. Um, it divides by race, which we which is very distressing, but nonetheless, what happens? Uh, the the capacity for the human uh, brain to decode facial expressions is so complex and so difficult to learn that we often uh, learn it based on the facial features of our own race group. And if you haven't had intimate exposure within a foot of your face of other uh, uh, facial uh, uh, arrangements that vary based on race, then you actually can't decode them. And so they become other. They become uh, a stranger. Um, uh, if you can't read the uh, facial expressions, the emotional uh, micro expressions on people's faces because you can't decode them, then they become strange and other. One, you see, uh, I don't know whether you uh, grew up in the same way that I did, but I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, which is a small, uh, which is a, a suburb outside of uh, Chicago. And the elementary schools are rigidly segregated by race. And then the middle schools are integrated and then the high schools are integrated. Um, but the, the segregation of the elementary schools was, was uh, rigidly enforced. Uh, when I was in fourth grade, um, this is in sort of the mid-60s, so at the height of the, the uh, civil rights movement around Martin Luther King, uh, 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 African-American family moved into the school district of the school that I went to, Lincoln School. And on the first day of school, uh, uh, the kid's name was Charles, came to school. and He was in my class, and we all lined up to go in. Um, and I said hello to him because my mother was so rigid about um, manners. Um, and uh, that night, somebody threw a Molotov cocktail on the porch of their house. He came to school the second day. I said hello to him in line um, and did not speak to him beyond that. And uh, they put a police car in front of his house. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, the police went on their break. And then somebody came and burned the house down with the family inside of it. They were able to escape, but they abandoned the attempt to integrate our school. I saw him uh, years later uh, in eighth grade uh, at a, at a uh, a summer school class, and he came over to me and he 
And he thanked me because I was actually the only person who had spoken to him in the two days he was at the school. And it, would, it was not uh, much of a gesture to simply say hello to somebody. So you can imagine the uh, extreme nature of that experience for him and then to have the house burned down and to, to have the police fail to protect. But I think there, there also was some understanding that if kids don't have that experience across race lines until they get to be about, what, sixth graders, what's that, 11 or 12 years old, then it's less likely that they'll be able to form relationships across the race lines later because they won't be able to read the facial expressions and body language of somebody and will create that natural spacing of other. And so we need to pay attention to the that just that natural mechanism that we have and to be willing to open to this compassionate experience of other people, even if our attachment mechanism is coming up uh, and creating this division. So watching that attachment activation and then opening, uh, creating this willingness to open to the experience across those lines and then to be willing to hold that suffering experience, be willing to track uh, what it is actually that's coming in that, that's creating uh, emotional difficulty for us because as soon as our emotional experience exceeds our ability to uh, regulate it, we will not be able to hold the uh, compassionate experience and we'll disconnect and move subtly into uh, uh, a sympathetic response or if it's really too much, maybe slip into a kind of cruel response. Do you ever notice yourself getting angry when you have, when somebody's making a demand over and over again that you help them emotionally regulate? Is that all making sense? Particularly now, when uh, the, 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 the extremes and the politic are the way that they are, and, and some people's active disregard and, and active, um, it, almost, it almost appears to me to be intentional causing of harm, we are not relieved of our obligation to respond in a compassionate way if we can, also recognizing our limitations. So then we train in all of the different skills that I mentioned in order to be able to do this. And uh, part of this is the formal practice of causing the mind state of compassion to arise. So uh, in the beginning, of course, understanding what a mind state is, understanding which mind state is which, and then having agency to be able to generate a particular mind state and hold it. It's going to be very helpful in terms of this practice. So if you can you can hold the mindset of compassion, of course, it changes the way that you create conceptual reality, which allow, makes it easier to be able to hold the compassionate experience of other people. You're holding this, you're creating this container, uh, making it large enough to hold their suffering experience and regulating both your emotion in response to their suffering and also their suffering emotional experience. That's the task. Fair enough, uh, in terms of it. When we when we do it for ourselves or for people who are close to us uh, and we can see the advantages of it, uh, um, 
in our own small uh, bubbles, uh, our own small social networks, that's one thing. But in, in going out into the world and doing it for neutral people, which includes um, everybody that we actually encounter, then it's, it's quite uh, varied who it is that we're going to respond to. Uh, obviously, um, or maybe not obviously, but you know, I'm I'm older, so I'm socially distancing, and I, my my uh, random uh, interactions with people is quite limited in comparison to what it what it can be. So, so um, let's uh, do some practice. So, any comments or questions about what we just did? Erin? I had a really unusual sensation arise when I was envisioning this person and giving them the phrases I had this overwhelming kind of heat arise in my head and it almost felt like a fever oh a what like a fever uh-huh. and I've never I've never experienced that before while doing this practice and I found it very odd. I mean, I kept doing it anyway, but I just, it, and it persisted almost through the whole meditation. Just in the head? Yeah, largely the head and the face and a little bit around my neck and shoulders. Uh-huh. So I would uh, probably describe that as PT. So sometimes it as you get more and more concentrated, it tends to localize into just a spot in the front of the head, but many people report that as part of the, the process of concentrating. Because you're concentrating usually on a view which is visual, it tends to draw your attention up into the head. Good. Someone else? Suzanne? Hi. Um... Well, I had a lot of resistance to um, generating compassion for my usual person. Um, yeah, I just kept having this, the thought of just not feeling like I cared enough for that person to generate compassion for them. So I went to my easy person. Okay. Um, yes, I get that. That's one of the challenges of working with neutral people. Um, uh, opening to the possibility of, of, the, of uh, caring about them. Uh, one of the upsides you get from that, though, of course, is when you go out into the world and you encounter them, it makes each of the encounters a little bit richer, a little bit more meaningful. And so you actually uh, raise the whole quality of meaningfulness in your life that way, as opposed to the reflexive pulling back into a sense of cruelty or judgment about the people around you, which has a tendency to be poisoning much in the way that any kind of uh, anger or cruelty would be poisoning. Someone else?
Jacqueline? I had a similar experience with Susan. It was hard to stay focused on that person because I just don't know them that well. So my it was very hard to stay, keep my attention on them. But as I did, um, I even though there were a lot of components about that person I didn't know for sure, I could imagine, you know, like that person has a family, that person might experience stress, they have to feed themselves. So I kind of started to get it, kind of fill in the blanks a little bit and just, you know, recalled on the interactions that I had from them, that what I've gained from the interactions and, you know, how, how it's benefited my life and, you know, kind of how they've reacted to me and how I might try to understand them better. It really did help me because I had some stress between my, it was actually our office manager here downstairs where, you know, sometimes it's not always a pleasant interaction when you're complaining and they're trying to serve you. It's, right. Yeah. Having a more compassionate view, I could kind of see where she's coming from a little bit better and understand how to communicate with her better. So um, pointing this out that the, were you able to hold the mind state of compassion? Yes, I was. The more I started to fill in those blanks, the more and more compassion I felt I had towards her. And I almost felt like she's like a sister to me. I almost felt like this sisterly kind of relationship. Closer friend type of consideration. Yeah. So, um, that's good as a preliminary practice, but we really do want to get to a place where we can just hold a neutral person as a neutral person. One of the things uh, that I notice about your description is that uh, it was a narrative about the person, creating a narrative about the person, and then uh, um, uh, holding that space around that. Um, we would call that uh, a kind of wet practice rather than the concentration-oriented dry practice because you're generating a narrative about it which is producing the experience and in the dry practice we really just want to focus on the mind state and holding the mind state for whoever we want now it's correct in that when the object isn't engaging in the way that we normally are engaged by objects the mind has a tendency to want to go somewhere else and so the real training is to keep pulling it back and re-activating uh, uh, the mind state so that we can hold that mind state in relationship to anybody. Um, so um, uh, I applaud the practice that you're doing, and, and, I, and I also want to point out the direction to go in. Thank you, yes, because I, it was that's kind of what I did in supplement. It was kind of challenging, so thank you for the guidance. Someone else? Christian. I was trying to determine if what I was, the mind state I had was really compassion, because at some point it got really concentrated, um, and it felt good. And so I was kind of trying to test, like, is this, because the I settled on the phrase, um, like, I, I turned towards your pain and sorrow, which I think made sense in terms of how I'm intending it. But I think a lot of the time I think of compassion or my experience of compassion as sort of 
someone's going through something sad or some someone's going through something difficult and I'm like there with them and I wasn't experiencing any kind of sadness or anything but um, I, I guess I was just trying to figure out how to test the actual mind state because I seemed to be very concentrated and I kind of had it almost kind of hurt in my head um, um, and it was I noticed when I get into either this or meta it sort of like cranes my neck up like I'm gonna like fall over somewhere. Or, um, I don't know. I guess I was just trying to, you know, what's the test for? Is this really the ex like the exact mind state I think it is? So then, when you're with somebody and they're suffering, can you hold the space without having to solve their problem? Just be emotionally yeah. regulating. One of the things to understand about this is if somebody's uh, suffering and the emotional experience is intense, their exploration mechanism is off. And so you may leap in and, and because your capacity to mentalize is operational, that you can solve all of the problems easily for them. But they may not need that. What they probably need is just somebody to help them emotionally regulate so that they're attachment mechanism can go off and their exploration mechanism can go on and once it's back on they can solve all those problems they don't need your help to solve the problems they need your help to emotionally regulate them so that they can settle and then be able to solve their problems and often that's where we get into trouble we think compassion is where we come in and save the day but that's really more for us and our experience of, of being the, the savior rather than actually being helpful to the other person. One of the things that I, I like to say, if you're going to be helpful, then it actually has to be helpful. <laughs> for them, not for you. <laughs> Is that good enough? Yeah, so maybe, maybe I can really test the mind state out when I'm actually with someone because I I think of like compassion is seems easier for me to understand than meta um, in a sort of visceral sense or like actually doing it um, so maybe maybe that'll be the test is next time I'm sort of with someone like can I explore that mind state in the context of actually being with them yeah and just see if you could be with them and help them emotionally regulate uh, Humor, remember, is a good test for that. All right, good. So thank you, everybody, for coming uh, to the class and, and engaging uh, compassionately our community, which is in uh, such uh, need at the moment. Um, let me just Sorry, Linnea, I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, sorry, Linnea raised her hand <laughs> i'm sorry i didn't see it and i didn't see the little yellow uh, paw up there so go ahead uh do we have time or yeah, yeah, have... Fine. okay i also had a similar um oh and thank you jacqueline um um <laughs> similar query is christian because i was like is this um really compassion um like i'm worried that it's i'm just generating sympathy and not like a sympathetic um so i was kind of like testing out 
phrases that I would use if I were being cruel versus sympathetic versus compassionate. And then, um, and I did, yeah, I did. And in, in my work, I'm around a lot of suffering, sad people. Um, and when I try to generate compassion in that setting, often it's just immediate. If I actually open, uh, then it's immediately overwhelming uh-huh. in terms of the visceral experience of their suffering. And I feel like I remember you saying something, George, about um, not not necessarily going to sympathy, but going to loving kindness. Is that would that also be appropriate? If well, totally, I think sympathy okay. is not. A, I don't. I don't want to in any way denigrate sympathy. It's a great uh, tool. Yeah. And you should use it whenever you need to. Uh, as, as and think of it as this rocking back and forth between sympathy and compassion, sympathy and compassion. And you really are doing a service both to yourself and to the other person by not allowing yourself to become overwhelmed by the experience. If sure. you become emotionally overwhelmed, your cognitive mind will shut off and then you won't be of use in yeah. your work, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, I did it for like half a second. I was like, ah, and just immediately <laughs> shut it down. So, um, and then so in, in this practice, my experience of compassion just, it feels like a very kind of serious mind. Like it's, the energy is calm, but not, I don't, I don't really associate humor with a compassionate mind, mental state. You're always using humor to track whether their attachment mechanism is shut off and their exploration mind is turned back on. If you crack a joke and they don't think it's funny, definitely got to go all in on the emotional regulation. But after you've done emotional regulation for a while, if you make a joke, you may find that they're half laughing or they're able to laugh, which means that it's you are being effective in your emotional regulation and that their cognitive mind is coming back on, which means their capacity to explore is coming back online. So then they're more able to solve the problems or make decisions about things uh, than they were before. And so you can then move into supporting that exploration rather than simply being emotionally soothing. It's just a way of tracking. Okay. Thank you. We do it around here with the meme of the day. There's a competition. See whether people get too stressed out. They don't find it funny. You might like this. The meme of the day yesterday, being that you're in Texas, was uh, imagine a picture of a cowboy crying, uh, saying, This damn artificial intelligence, my truck left. <laughs> Damn, artificial intelligence and self-driving cars, my truck left me. <laughs> I guess it's smarter than all of us. Because <laughs> we're still here. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, thank you again. Um, we have... Uh, the level two class uh, is starting on March 18th, but uh, 
I think we're down to like one one or two spaces. So if you are actually considering doing it, you should sign up uh, uh, as soon as you can because this it'll be full. Um, and then uh, we'll we'll set up a waiting list for the next class, which will start uh, probably in September. We have a uh, meditation and addiction uh, weekend retreat in uh, April coming up. Uh, if you have addiction issues or you have uh, friends or family members that have addiction issues, it might be useful to, to take a look at that uh, class. It, it is, um, I don't know if you're outside the addiction community, it, you, you may not have awareness of it, but the pandemic uh, and the social isolation that accompanies it has been terrible for the uh, uh, recovery community and the, 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 uh, the ODs are skyrocketing and the, and the deaths are skyrocketing. So it's an important thing to pay attention to. Um, and then in June, uh, I think it's June 12th to June 19th, we're having a, a virtual retreat. So it's Saturday to Saturday take a look at that as well. We do have some scholarships for the level two and also for the, the retreat. Um, and then uh, we will uh, put up the, uh, the calendar for the second half of the year. We're going to do a series of level ones, the, the four day longs, and we'll do another level two class and then there'll be a retreat. I wish I could say that I was confident that we could have a residential retreat at the end of the year but I'm going to guess that that one's going to be virtual and uh, that maybe uh, in the summer of 22, we'll be back to uh, residential retreats. Uh, we'll see. I offer this class uh, on a Donna basis. What that means is that I offer the teachings freely, but then I do hope that you'll make a donation to support me and also to support the work that Metagroup is doing. You can find a link on the, the site uh, or maybe in the email that you got. Um, please make a donation if you can. Uh, and if you can't, of course, because of these challenging times, we as a community are very happy to support a space for you to practice. Thursday night, uh, this is Thursday night. So next Tuesday, we're going to continue with the uh, concentration practice and we'll do uh, compassion for difficult people next time. So <laughs> you think you had trouble with a neutral person. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, George. <laughs> George, before you go, can I just ask you, um, how do you deal with like fatigue, like with your mind state? Cause lately, I've just been feeling like out of it. Even like when I started my practice today, I kind of had these like tunneling kind of feelings of just like it's hard harder to focus do you ever experience just like fatigue <laughs> uh is it tiredness or sloth and torpor do you think not tiredness sloth and torpor i think that i would probably go with walking meditation maybe a walking meta meditation do you have some place outside that you could do that or so that's what i would do yeah. Yeah, like even I just feel like, oh, I like this feeling of, oh, I don't want to try. You know, I just want to be lazy. So, but yeah, I could try that. Yeah, so that you're going toward kindness. And so do it um, either for all sentient beings, which is just wide open or expansive, or uh, just do it for yourself. 
Okay. Yeah, oh, that sounds good. Thank you so much. Already. Bye now. Bye.